DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be joined by Joel Stepanek, who is Director of Resource Development at Life Team. He's also a ministry team member and a keynote speaker for the Steubenville Youth Conferences. He previously served as a Director of Youth Ministry at St. Francis of Assisi Parish in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, and is an adjunct faculty member at Franciscan University of Steubenville. He is also the author or co-author of several books, including Getting More Out of Confession, True North, and Greatest Job on Earth. With Joel Stepanek, we go inside the pages of Chasing Humility, Eight Ways to Shape a Christian Heart, published by Ave Maria Press. Joel, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Chris. I love how you approached this book. Tell me what set you on this course of using the great litany of humility to fashion this particular teaching. Oh, man, years ago, I was a youth minister. I was a young youth minister at a parish in Wisconsin and just had a rough first year where a lot of my prideful aspects manifested themselves and I had lots of opportunities for humility. And in the course of that, in talking with a spiritual advisor, they had kind of said, hey, why don't you try this litany of humility? Uh, Some friends had recommended that prayer and we're getting into it. So it became something that I made a a pretty much daily practice in praying through it. But as that's been a part of my spiritual discipline for over a decade, uh, I realized that I don't always understand or feel comfortable praying all the aspects of that prayer. And I've spent time reflecting on it. Uh, and then in those reflections, just were given some opportunities to present them to other people through retreats. And then a few people had said, hey, we would love to have you put these things down in a book. And that's kind of where the book was born out of, but really started with my own personal journey and needing to say, how do I keep myself spiritually healthy and humble? And what does that mean? What does that really look like? When I first became familiar with the Litany of Humility, it was visiting the Missionaries of Charity. And in their chapel, they had this prominently placed on the wall. And it is a prayer that they're called to pray every day. I remember when I first looked at it and I thought, oh, this is so beautiful. And you start to pray it. And a very wise Monsignor said to me, be careful, because once you start to pray it, you will be affected. I think if there's any prayer we make that God responds to you immediately, it's a prayer for humility. Yeah, beautifully said. Well, the Queen of Humility, Our Lady, you really do see her in all these aspects, don't you? Oh, absolutely. I think when we talk about a desire that others would be loved more than we are loved, uh, and you see that all over the life of Mary, everything she does is pointing people towards Christ, um, that they would be immersed in this great love. And when we talk about a desire uh, that others would be praised and I unnoticed, you know, everything again, Mary does points back to her son and looking at who Jesus is. And Mary uh, isn't a footnote by any means in the story of Christ, but from her vantage point, you could say that maybe her desire was to, to simply be a footnote. But I think there's something really beautiful in that comparison. And Mary is the queen of humanity and what a model we have in her. In our culture, for several generations now, it's all been about us. Look at me. Look at me. We've even developed tools. The selfie isn't a millennial thing. It took a generation, my generation, to develop the technology that created 
the tools <laughs> to do selfies. We can't just say it's for the young. I guess that's where I'm going with that. But it manifests itself in the great sin of pride. Everything in our culture feeds it, doesn't it? It does. And I think that's so funny. The selfie is truly a generational project. Um, I think you're right. And I think pride, it's its the primary sin, isn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. you go back to the fall of humanity and the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter three. And what is the temptation to be like God, to be able to be on the same level with who God is? And that is pride at its deepest level. I think some of that comes from a pushback against a misconception of what humility is. And I think when people think about humility, they think, man, that sounds self-deprecating. That sounds like I don't have anything for myself. It almost sounds like I don't get to be full and alive. When living a humble life actually makes us free, if we have a right understanding of what humility is, it doesn't make us think less of ourselves. It allows us the freedom to think of others more and to be present to who we are before God. And in knowing those things, I think that there is incredible, uh, profound joy in that versus continually trying to self-promote, continually trying to cut up a facade of who I want people to see me as on social media in constantly being afraid of people disliking me or not getting praised by others or being forgotten. So I'm constantly trying to push myself in people's faces. I think that's a prison. I think to be humble allows us to be so much more and to really be who God calls us to be. You bring up an extraordinary point. I think it's because it's a lie in a real way that somehow I can fill that space myself. I'm going to grab whatever I can. I'm going to do whatever I can because there's such a gaping hole inside of me or, or a lack of confidence that I can be liked, that people are going to discover that if I don't put up what I, what I have to fashion, that somehow they're going to know the real me and I won't be loved. I think you hit on something so profound with that. And you're right, Chris. Confidence seems like it would be opposed to humility. But really, I think what people think of as confidence is more bravado or hubris and not true confidence. And I guess for me, the reflection on confidence and its tie to humility came as I interacted with people who I would say, wow, that's a genuinely humble person. I'm around them. I get energized. I feel the peace of Christ through that person. And I realized that those people were humble, but remarkably self-confident, but not in this brash, self-promoting way. They just knew who they were before the Lord, and that's where they derived their worth. And that's humility, being able to say, God, you're God, I'm not. And there's such freedom in not having to be God and not having to be my own savior and not having to fill these pieces of me that feel empty because the Lord does that. And when that produces a self-confidence, humility is sure to follow. But we can't be humble without self-confidence because we'll never feel confident enough to praise others because we'll be worried that people might not praise us or to love others more than we uh, even desire to be loved because we'll get afraid that then maybe people might hate us. Maybe people don't love us at all. And I think there's a real truth in the desire to be humble needs to come from a self-awareness and a self-confidence. We're talking with Joel Stepanek about his book, Chasing Humility, Eight Ways to Shape a Christian Heart. I really cannot recommend this book more highly. You had me at the very first chapter, Being Authentic. I love what you did with the litany of humility in that you, in these different eight ways, 
you didn't necessarily go line by line, but you grouped it into areas that really do shape the heart. It's really quite extraordinary what you've done here, Joel. It was an absolute gift to me, I think, from just the fruit of some prayer. And so uh, in looking at the prayer, it's a deliverance prayer. If you pray the mm-hmm. litany of humility, it's from the desire of being loved. Deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being despised. Deliver me, Jesus. Uh, and we're asking deliverance from these disordered desires. And I realized in praying through it that all of those petitions lined up where when we pray for deliverance from a disordered desire, like a disordered desire to be loved, that leaves that hole we talked about. And that hole is where the devil can insert fear. And the fear, if we're not loved, is that we'll be despised. And so we have to pray deliverance from that fear. But then we have to fill the hole with something. And that's what I love about the prayer is praying for God to give us a new, rightly ordered desire. And I, I realized just in praying it myself that those things grouped together and lined up. And really, it was about me. <laughs> you know, book on humility, it's about me in my prayer saying, how can I look at this prayer and pray it authentically, but in a way that provides me with something practical and actionable. I love those kinds of things. And I think that uh, for me, those eight ways have, have blessed my spiritual journey and made it challenging in all of the right ways. And I hope that they are able to bless other people in that way as well. You know, I really understand why Mother Teresa had, St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta would have her sisters offer this prayer every day, because I think what you just said is really key. This is a truly authentic, if I can use that word again, deliverance prayer, because what it is, it's not others praying for me, which you you want that for, of course, as in a Christian community. But this puts the focus right between Jesus, come to me, help me. Mm-hmm. Here, Here's the thing I'm craving. You free me, Jesus. And it puts the relationship, it orders the relationship, doesn't it? Oh, it totally does. And that's why I think even the first part of the prayer, oh, Jesus, meek and humble of heart, mm-hmm. hear me. It makes us any of the sick, any of the leprous, any of the blind, any of the mute in the Gospels who cry out to Jesus in the same way, like uh, Jesus, you know, son of David, hear me. And it makes us a beggar before God, which is a good thing, because then we don't come with anything full, like I can save myself from these things, We're saying, Lord, give me the grace to be delivered. And then in that, Jesus can say, all right, great, here's the grace. Now here's how we act upon that grace to grow in virtue. As I just said, you had me at that very first chapter in that section on being authentic. It's the basic tenet of our identity. It's knowing who we are. And you broke it down into three different questions that we need to ask ourselves. Yeah, and this I owe to my dad and a conversation we had when I was a teenager. Uh, As a teenager struggling to find my identity, that's a basic developmental task of an adolescent. Uh, and I was just like everybody else in that regard. And we had a conversation one night that has stuck with me and I think informed my view on humility is in order to be authentic, uh, he said to me, we have to know who we are before God and who God says we are. And that's truth. That is uh, irrefutable. And then we have to know who we say we are, what truths or, you know, what things do we say about ourselves? And then who do people say that we are? And when those things line up, we experience harmony because we're being authentic. We're being who God says we are. We're saying who we are, and that aligns with God's truth about us. And then others see that. So how others perceive me is congruent with who I say that I am, which is 
congruent to who God says I am. But so many people have those things in misalignment in any number of ways. So God might speak a truth about us, but for any number of reasons, we might speak a different truth about ourselves. We might say, no, I'm not worthy. I'm not good. Or conversely, we might say, I don't need God. I am self-sufficient. I am self-sustaining. And neither one of those things is true. So now there's a dissonance. Or we might know who we are. I'm a, a faithful Catholic. I love the Lord. My, my faith is important to me. But then what other people see are different actions that don't line up with that. Maybe it's hypocrisy, or maybe it's not hypocrisy in a scandalous sense, but hypocrisy in, I claim that Jesus makes a difference in my life, but I don't live like Jesus has made a difference in my life. And now there's a dissonance there. Social media makes it so easy to create that dissonance as well, because I can present myself however I want online and make people see me however I want them to and cultivate a whole image. But those things cause anxiety, they cause stress, uh, and ultimately, partly are at the root for a lot of the mental illness we're seeing. Not, not entirely, but I think they contribute to it, certainly. But if people look at those three areas and combine them up, we are able to live authentically. And that authenticity produces an ability to be vulnerable with others, which ultimately allows us to have a real intimacy, a connection with other people, but more importantly, with our Lord. I found that, especially at the end of each chapter, where you have the weekly humility practice, the monthly humility practice, and the yearly humility practice, I jumped into this one right away. I mean, I sat down, and in the scripture verses that you gave for this particular practice, to identify how does God see me, and reminding myself, this is what the Word has said about me, how He feels about me, where am I projecting myself, and as you said, how do others see me? You see that so often, don't you, Joel? I mean, the writings of the saints, like Therese and Teresa of Avila, Carmelites, that jumps to my mind. But that mm -hmm. is humility because they understood who they were before God. This is who I am. I'm maybe not perfect. Here are my particular gifts, but I know that God loves me and I know that Jesus died for me. And then that affected their interactions with others. And we see that, don't we? Oh, absolutely. I think the people who have a developed spiritual life, and it's not a hard Thing to develop. It just takes time and awareness of the constant reminder of who we are before the Lord. And that understanding of uh, humility not only produces authenticity, but I found produces a deeper love uh, for who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what Jesus continues to do in our lives. Yeah, you mentioned that section on uh, confidence, too. I think that is key. The three portions of the litany you used for this was from the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus, that others may be esteemed more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Wow. And then you put in your own personal experience from this, and now it becomes doable, I think. You begin to have hope that it actually can happen. Yeah, that section, candidly, was the toughest one for me to write, because I think everybody has an area of the litany of humility where they, if they're being honest, are going to struggle to pray a couple of those petitions, which is what makes it such a great prayer. It's, it's surgical in its ability to determine our attachments. And for me, those things uh, strike at the heart of, of my spiritual journey, because I sometimes experience a lack of confidence in who I am, who God created me to be. And that makes me want to be others' choice, uh, to be preferred, because then I feel wanted, I feel needed, I feel chosen. I'm somebody's preference. I mean, how good does it feel when someone says, oh man, 
I would prefer to hang out with you this weekend. I would prefer to go get coffee with you. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm a preference. Uh, but the flip side is if we don't have confidence, it's not bad to be somebody's preference, but if we don't have confidence, we're always going to want to be somebody's preference and we're going to get anxious when we're not, uh, when it seems like somebody's chosen over us or somebody's preferred in, instead of us. And then a lack of confidence is going to produce a fear of being humiliated. And humiliation is an interesting aspect of our spiritual life just because it's going to happen. There's moments we don't get it right. There's moments we're embarrassed. There's moments we're brought low. That's what humiliation means. And humiliation, if we're not confident, becomes destructive. But if we have confidence in who we are before the Lord uh, and we allow that to drive our identity, those moments of humiliation become moments for growth. Oh man, I really rushed into that conversation without having all of the facts together. And as a result, I said something that that was incorrect. And I really got humiliated because I came in with the wrong facts and I don't ever want to do that again. Or I thought I was preparing for one thing, but I didn't ask all of the right questions. And I came in with the wrong information to that team meeting. And I just was embarrassed. I was humiliated. And I know that I'll never do that again. And then we don't allow those humiliations to define us, but we allow them to form us and shape us. Uh, but it can only happen if we're confident in who we are before the Lord and allow that to drive our identity. We'll return to Inside the Pages in just a moment. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these videos, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. A prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essef, Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Did you also know that you can listen to Discerning Hearts programming wherever you download your favorite podcasts, like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, even on Audible, as well as numerous other worldwide podcast streaming platforms. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has a YouTube channel? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. We now return to Inside the Pages. Again, we're talking with Joel Stepanek about his book, Chasing Humility, Eight Ways to Shape a Christian Heart. Run out and chase this book. Find it. Get it. Do whatever you have to. Because I really think it is important for the formation of the Christian heart. The practices in themselves at the end of each chapter, I mentioned that just a few moments before, 
I think these are really strong spiritual exercises in themselves. Thank, I, thank you. I appreciate you saying that because I, for me, it just it's about being practical. I think humility in my experience of it through since the time I was a teenager and heard people talk about humility is so foundational to the Christian life, which it absolutely is. There was never any real practical way to grow in that. It almost was like, you need to be humble, but the moment you start talking about how to be humble, you're no longer humble. So don't talk Mm -hmm. about it. Don't think about it. It's just something you do. And I was always thinking, well, how, how do I practically do that? Does it mean like wearing sackcloth and ashes? Does it mean never taking compliments? What does it look like? And so those were all practices at the end of each chapter that I found to be beneficial and practical. I need practical things that I can implement to help me grow in a virtue. And it's a virtue. So it's grace and then our effort. You know, one of the sections in the book is entitled Loving Others. And I think this is a very, very tender spot here because this part of the litany, as you said, there are portions of it that you read it and it's just like, ooh, the reason I say it's it's tender because it's from the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus, from the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus, that others may be loved more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Now, I think the toughest thing that we have sometimes, and you know this, Joel, and it's a commandment, is to love others. As we love God, we love our brothers and sisters. and oftentimes that can be a great challenge because we expect things. Unfortunately, it's difficult to love, give, and expect nothing. And that's essentially what we're being asked to do. Because if you're feeling, if you're expecting to be loved in return or to be honored, that's a problem. Or if on the flip of that, if you're loving, but you've got this fear, oh, they're going to clobber me, or I'm going to get smashed for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's a problem, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the moment we start to say, well, I'll love my neighbor if they love me back, or if it gains me some sort of relational capital, then we put conditions on love. And conditional love is ultimately not love. It's liking somebody, it's affirming somebody, but it's not, it's contractual. And authentic love is not contractual, it's covenantal, um, and it's exchange of persons. And I think this section is probably one of the tougher ones to read, but I also think one of the most practical. When we talk about delivering from a desire to be loved, like the truth is an ordered desire to love and be loved is at the core of who we are. We're made in the image and likeness of God, God who is love, and so love is the foundation of our being but a disordered desire to be loved. And that's that's why that desire from the desire to be loved can push me to do some things that make me seek love that is not actually love. And it's in any relationship where somebody stayed for too long because they're just worried that if they leave, nobody will love them. And maybe they've even been verbally abused to that point where somebody has said, if you leave me, no one else will love you. Um, and that is just so heartbreaking, but people fear not being loved because it's at the core of who we are. And they even fear more, oh man, if I'm not loved, what if people despise me? And I think that's in those sections comes back to our relationship with the Lord and saying, if God loves me perfectly and knows me perfectly and loves me infinitely, then that love is enough for me to tap into it and run over. And confident in that love, I can even go out. And this is where it becomes so practical. We pray that others may be loved more than I. I have the power to affect that. 
that's not a prayer. I just pray like, Jesus, you know, love others more than you love me. Well, God loves us infinitely. So he loves you infinitely and me infinitely. You can't have more of infinity, but I can seek to love others more than I am seeking to be loved in very tangible ways in my conversations, in my service, in how I approach my enemies and those who have wronged me. And there's, there's certainly safe ways and ways that we have boundaries to do that. But if my mentality is I'm going to pray that others would be loved more than I, and then I'll go do something about that. That's a game changer. And I think within the Christian community, it allows us to never worry about being loved because we start to say, if I'm seeking to love others more than myself, I'm confident that within the Christian community, there are other people who are seeking to love as well. Um, and that all gets reciprocated, but not necessitated. I think that's a key difference. Well, here we go back to identity and who we authentically are. And that very first mm-hmm. point that you bring out in the very beginning of the book is to know that God loves you. The Father created you. He loves you. He knows you. This is you're his child. You are, you've been claimed. You're his. Okay. That's the thing that if you have that, then it becomes, the only thing I can say, it becomes safe. And I think that's the, that's Mm -hmm. the fear because I I think we're living not just in a culture, not just in a church. I just think today period, there's just so much fear, isn't there, Joel? There is. And I think there's titles for God that are safe titles, uh, which we don't always use, but like the Psalms call God rock deliverer, fortress, warrior, valiant, strong armed. Like we have words and titles for the Lord that the psalmist use and, and that are used in prophetic voices that are safety words, that God is foundationally safe for us and that in him we don't need to fear, uh, that his love casts out fear. But I think sometimes we've reduced God to like the level of a peer. And I think that's part of what even among Christians generates anxiety is like, you know, we we joke, oh, Jesus is a friend of mine. And there's that cutesy song from, the, I think, the, the 70s, Jesus is a friend of mine. Uh, but Jesus is so much more than a friend. He is my savior. He's my deliverer. He's my rock. And when I have that understanding of Jesus, I need not fear because that shepherd's with me versus if I've made the Lord appear to me, which isn't humility. It's, it's putting us on par with God again, just in like a very... Uh, you know, maybe politically correct way. Um, he can't, a peer can't save me. A friend can't save me. They can provide companionship, but they can't provide salvation. And I think part of what we need to do, even in our Christian world, is to start to say, have I made Jesus just appear? Uh, at which point he's a good companion, but that doesn't necessarily make him able to deliver me and keep me safe. Or do I really understand who Jesus is as Savior? And if I am in him, not only am I new, but I'm protected, I'm, uh, I'm sustained, and ultimately I'm safe from whatever attacks may come because this world is not my ultimate destination. I'm made for something so much more. Oh, boy, Joel, again, chasing humility, eight ways to shape a Christian heart, I think is so important. And we've only touched on just a few of the, the different eight ways. We haven't been able to dive into each one just because time is short, but I do want to talk about breaking boundaries because I think that goes in hand with what you've just said. Once you have that freedom to allow him, he can do anything. He takes over the desire of being approved. Free me from the fear of being ridiculed that others may be holier than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. The world can be changed then, can it? 
it really can be. And I think even the other day, there was a whole conversation on Twitter about this particular animator whose cartoons have become very popular. They're funny little cartoons and they just kind of strike at the heart of the human experience. But somebody went back through his Twitter timeline and found something posted from, I think, 2017. And it was actually a reposting of something his girlfriend had posted where she was talking about the March for Life and said every year, this is a paraphrase, but every year, you know, I'm at the March for Life, people go and I'm somebody who could have been aborted, but I wasn't. Um, and it's so great. We have this event for women to choose life. And then he had copied that and added his own commentary. I'm so thankful for my girlfriend and that her mother chose life and for what the March for Life does. You know, like nothing crazy, but, but mm -hmm. affirming the March for Life, affirming life, having a, a stand for life. And people found it and immediately jumped on his case and were like, how dare you force women to give birth? How dare you support this horrible event? I'm not looking at your comics. I'm not reading your stuff. I'm not contributing anymore. And it's the idea of uh, what's being called a cancel culture, which is people literally saying to him, you're canceled. We don't want you a part of the culture anymore. We don't want to read your stuff. Your opinion differs from ours and is offensive. And we're just going to freeze you out. And that's a very real fear for people, especially people who are in the public eye who could make such a difference because nobody wants their approval rating to drop mm -hmm. because of what it might mean for my financial success, my, my worldly success, how people view me. And I think that produces a chilling effect on speaking truth and speaking the gospel is we're worried if we proclaim this truth that we've been given, Jesus has set me free. And if that's true, that's not just a little thing. And it's actually pretty selfish if I keep that to myself. Uh, my faith that Jesus is Savior can't be personal. It has to be very public because I need to invite people into that. But our fear of being ridiculed for the gospel, I think more and more for people, is causing them to want to stay safe and stay within the lines and not share that with other people, which is what that last chapter is about, is ultimately humility uh, is the ability for us to say what I've been given is so much bigger than myself and I can't contain it to myself, I have to share it. I think prideful Christianity exists when we say Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior, and uh, it's a personal decision. So I don't want to, I'm not going to share that with you, because it's really not about me not wanting to share Jesus, because I don't think he'll save you. It's about me being so afraid that you'll reject it. And that really then is me focused rather than you focused. Uh, and that's pride. Mm, wow. Yeah, I've, I've heard it said, Joel, that there are three words in the gospel that Jesus said more than any other, and it wasn't love your neighbor. It was be not afraid. Because when you're fearful, it locks you up. You can't love. You can't do anything. You have to be freed from that fear. That's when John Paul came out on that balcony and, and I, as a teenager, saw him. He said, be not afraid. That's the key to truly allowing yourself to be loved, isn't it? It's true. And I think a lot of people who wrestle with fear now go uh, and they need to go back to all the way where we were at the beginning of the book, which is uh, who we are before God, because uh, in the first letter of St. John, he says, perfect love casts out fear. Mm. And so if we want to start to address the fear in our life, especially the fear of sharing Christ with others, we have to go back and say, I don't need the approval of other people because ultimately, God loves me and approves me. And the interesting thing is when you break those boundaries, we, I think, are fearful in our personal lives of sharing Jesus. But we find more often than not, that people are like hungry for what we have to share, even if they're not converted on the spot. 
very few people in public in, in our relationships where we would share the Lord, we would break those boundaries are going to look at us and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're bringing this up. I want nothing to do with you. Instead, it's almost a breath of fresh air. Like here's somebody who believes in something so much that they would want to share it with me. But the only way we can do that is by living in the love of God, which ultimately casts out any fear we might have. And I wish we had more time. I really do. But just in closing this out, do you have any final thoughts? Just that humility is a work in progress always. Um, And I think that every great saint knew that, but there's joy in that process. I think sometimes we misunderstand humility as once I pray for it, God is going to, you know, just lay the righteous smack down on me. And I don't think when we pray for humility, God says, oh, now I'm going to give you opportunities to be humble, or I'm going to make you humble. I think God lifts the veil from our eyes and says, here's all the places in your life right now that you've been living in, that you've been experiencing, where you could grow in humility. Uh, I don't even need to present new things to you. Here's just the new things. Um, I think that's amazing. Uh, And then just if people want to go grab the book, I think one hope that I've had for it is that uh, people in leadership, especially within the church, uh, young seminarians and married couples uh, or couples preparing for marriage, especially would be able to sit down and pray through it because humility is so foundational to good leadership, to spiritual growth and spiritual leadership, and ultimately to living out the sacrament of holy orders and the sacrament of matrimony. I highly recommend it for every age, actually. I I think this is something that we, it's never too late to start. It's never too late to begin again and to realize that if a wise, wise woman, St. Teresa of Calcutta, saw the beauty and the importance of this particular prayer, I can't help but think she would love this book and helping it to break open it even more in the Christian heart. Joel, this is just outstanding. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for, uh, for having me on to discuss it. It's, it's an absolute blessing. With Joel Stepanek, we've gone inside the pages of Chasing Humility, Eight Ways to Shape a Christian Heart. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to AveMariaPress.com, the website for its publisher, Ave Maria Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.